My name is R? Okay, good. Sorry. This is Beth Wish, and we begin a series entitled Return to Sender, and she's going to testify now to her story of how she came to Christ. Good morning. I came to know Christ in my 20s, and it was through a relationship with a woman in my life. Her name is Hope Staunches. She started off as a daycare provider for my daughter when she was two, and I was 23. I was a lost little girl. I, I was suffering with anxiety and depression. I was a single mother. I was thousands of miles away from my family, and I had no relationship with Jesus. And Hope loved me no matter what. I felt unworthy. I never thought I could have a relationship with Christ because I wasn't good enough. And Hope spent four years loving me and walking alongside of me and loving my daughter like her own child. And that time that she put in convinced me that it wasn't me that needed to be good enough. I just needed to accept that Jesus was always good enough and accept salvation through him. So she lived alongside me. She walked alongside me. She never made me feel condemned. And through that relationship, she gave her testimony. She would invite me to church, and I knew she would pray for me, but she never preached the gospel. She lived the gospel every single solitary day with me and my daughter. And through that, I came to know the love of Christ. She put in the time. It took her four years. <laughs> she said her consistent prayer was that God wouldn't harden my heart, and he didn't. And, and she really ushered him in by showing me that, that there is pure love with no strings attached, and it can happen on earth. And it really was sometimes literally just putting in the time. <laughs> so yeah. that's really how I come, came to know Christ. Thank you, Beth. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. It's awesome, isn't it? We've heard uh, Beth's testimony about how her friend Hope <clears throat> walked with her through life, being patient with her, and listening to her story, and not judging her, not condemning her, showing her kindness. You know, our deepest longing is to be known and loved. And now we as a church are in a phase of sending out. Uh, Beth is being sent to Utah. Within a few weeks, Beth will be living in Utah, helping with curriculum at the University of Utah. She and her husband and family will be moving out there, so we'll miss Beth. But the goal of our series is to return to a sending church. Our aim is through you learning to be encouraged in the gospel and engagement with non-believers, we'll see many, many spiritual conversations happen because we have a vision. Our vision is to reach the world for Jesus by intentionally equipping you and sending out disciple makers. And our mission, very clearly, is to be disciples who are making disciples who live in love like Jesus. Last week, Eric spoke to you, beginning the series on sharing the gospel, and he used an acronym entitled GUN. And some of you guys were issued squirt guns. If you don't have one, we'll issue a new squirt gun. But the idea behind it is storming the gates of hell with our squirt guns blazing, right? And the G stands for going where the people are. Now, that was a strategy that Jesus employed to go where the people were. We're going to talk about, for a moment as we open up, a conversation he had with a woman who had gone to the well. He had gone to a place where his disciples had never been, to a place called Sychar, where Jews never passed through. And there he engaged in a conversation. The U in the gun stands for understanding your audience or understanding the culture, 
understanding the need. This woman had come to the well very thirsty, and she had a great need for salvation. And Jesus understood that need and would offer her the gift of living water. And the N stands for the necessary approach because we're all different in how we make the approach to somebody. Well, how do we get to know our neighbors so we can talk to them about Jesus? The answer is getting to know people's story. Every person you encounter has a story, and all of their stories matter, matter to God and to us. Everybody has a story. They are dying to tell somebody, right? Moms have a story, and dads have a story, and soldiers, they have a story, and baristas, they have stories to tell, and parents and students. If you ride a taxi cab or an Uber, they have a story to tell. Waiters waiting on your restaurants. You see, people, as they trust you, will begin to open up and tell you their story. And it takes a little while to get beyond the surface level, but if the person believes that you are sincere and are interested, they will progressively tell you their story. Promise, I promise, it's true. Now, you may have to ask a question or two, but if you're perceived by the person as being a safe person, what they long for is to be known and to be loved. See, their deeper story takes on their deeper identity, and often that'll involve deep, deep pain. In John chapter 4 and verse 39, we read that many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus, believed in him, because of what the woman said when she testified. Notice that the power of her life was she was telling her story to others. I imagine her going to the marketplace after being with Jesus and said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, Jesus had simply asked her to go call her husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. You see, the woman in the story was very thirsty. Jesus had gone where she was, and Jesus had a water gun, right, like we've issued. And in that water gun, there was living water. And Jesus was offering to give her something she didn't have, which was water from within. Jesus understands the audience. He understands the culture. He understands her need. And he presented himself to her as the Savior of the world. So let me try to introduce this topic to you. And the sermon's entitled, What's the Problem? So what's the problem? <laughs> well, we don't really believe we have a problem. Right? It's true. Sometimes we have a really big problem, but we don't believe we have a problem. Um, there was some water backing up into my garage, and my son Chris, who was there, said, Dad, you have a problem. I said, sure, the water's always backed up in the garage. He said, I think I found the solution to the problem. That is that the, the uh, water spout thing is kind of blocked up and it's flowing back into the garage. Dad, here's the problem. In the West, there's a huge problem now that Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Oregon are on fire. Many of the mountains are on fire. Precious acreage is burning. 
in the south, Houston, Florida, are underwater. But many refuse to deal with the problem because they don't believe they have a problem. I mean, your wife may see the problem, your husband may see the problem, your therapist may see the problem, your financial planner may see the problem, your kids, they may see the problem, but we don't see the problem. Um, my mom lived for 17 years in Naples, Florida. She now is with the Lord, but I can remember many conversations with her saying, Mom, are you going to evacuate? And she said, no, I'm going to ride this storm out. She um, had been through a couple world wars. She lost a couple husbands. But in the view of a hurricane approaching her city, she was not going to leave. She said, I've stocked up on food. I've got plenty of water. I'm just going to ride this out. So now Debbie has a stepmom who lives in Florida. And we've been having this conversation. Are you going to evacuate? Said, nope. We're just going to ride the storm out. This is going to pass on through. You see, sometimes the problem is we don't see that we have a problem. It's pretty much obvious to everybody else, but it's not obvious to us that we have a problem. Point number two, we have renamed the problem. The word sin is almost exclusively used in a theological sense. We've removed the word sin and replaced it with the word mistake. To say I've made a mistake has nowhere near the weight or the gravity of saying I have sinned. I mean, we see, don't we see public officials with eight microphones confessing, you know, I just made a mistake for the last 11 years. This guy's just blown up his marriage. He's just blown up his reputation, blown up his family, blown up his city. But what he's done for the last 11 years, wouldn't you say, is bigger than a mistake? A mistake is turning left when you should have turned right. right? Mistake is what you do in math class. You know, you make a mistake. I mean, if I were to say to you all, how many of you have made a mistake? Would you raise your hand? You've made a mistake. Okay. Now, how many of you all have sinned? Wow, very good. I, I was surprised, actually, <laughs> that somebody would say that. So what's happened in our culture is we have renamed the problem, calling it mistakes. Mistakes imply I don't have sufficient in information. I didn't know. I plead ignorance. To say I sinned means I knew exactly what I was doing. So I ask the question, why do we make the same mistakes over and over and over again? I mean, three weeks we can even say, I was doing so well, I was not looking at that stuff, right? I was not being with them. I was not drinking as much. I wasn't using the credit card. I haven't gone to that website for seven days. I haven't been to the bar for a month. But even when we've been doing so very well, after a few days of doing well, we want to go back to do what we used to do, saying, I've earned that, right? I deserve to do it. We have a really deep problem, and the deep problem is our sin. A really baby step to take is to say, I have a problem. And the solution to the problem requires that we acknowledge that we have a problem. 
First Timothy says this is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, Paul said, I am the worst. Jesus came to seek and save them which were lost. Jesus came to redeem us. He came to restore us. He came to be a, be a friend to sinners. Jesus came to give us freedom and forgiveness. Jesus reconciled us to himself and has given to us a ministry of reconciliation. But sin breaks our relationship with God and with others. You see, the purpose why Jesus brought up the subject of sin was not condemnation to condemn us, it was restoration. He wants to restore us as we were meant to be. And Jesus knew that as long as we think of ourselves as a mistaker, we won't seek after forgiveness. The only way for the relationship to be restored is for the offender to acknowledge that there was an offense. John chapter 8. I'd like to walk you slowly through a story that's pretty well known of Jesus dealing with a woman as well as dealing with some of the religious leaders of his day. It says the last line of chapter 7 was that each one went to his home. There was a large group there in the temple courts. Each went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. We know that Jesus, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. When people went home to their homes, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. You ask, why did he go there? Well, Jesus was spending time with his Father. He was communing. He was praying in that. So can you imagine the Savior of the world curled up under an olive tree, sleeping through the night, praying, and then waking up very early in the morning? At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. Now, this says something about Jesus and his ministry because he's not appearing in the Holy of Holies or the temple of the, of the men, the, the Jewish men, but he's come to the courts, the court of the women, where the women could also gather around Jesus. And there was a large crowd that had gathered early in the morning to receive his teaching. No one had ever taught like Jesus because he taught with great authority. And the people gathered all about him, and Jesus sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now notice that she wasn't thinking about adultery. She wasn't Facebooking a friend on the internet. She was caught in the very act of adultery. There's a lot of reasons why adultery is such a bad idea. Primarily, adultery hurts people. It hurts oneself because oneself becomes one flesh with someone else. It destroys trust in the context of relationship. It's very hard to repair after adultery has happened. So here's a woman, and she's caught in the very act of adultery. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in this woman, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
Now, I don't know how you deal with awkward moments, but this was an extremely awkward moment. Here was something that was done in private that now has become very public. Something that happened at her house or someone else's house, now that she's been discovered, she's been brought into the public sphere. Can you imagine how she was feeling in this moment? How would you be feeling in this moment? I would imagine she was feeling great trepidation and fear. I imagine she was feeling great regret about what had transpired. I imagine she was feeling great guilt and shame over what had just happened, about putting herself in this position and now being drug out to the public's arena and made a spectacle. The uh, Pharisees made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? <laughs> if you know something about the Old Testament law, the law required that both the man and the woman both be stoned. And one of the questions you have to ask in the story is, where's the man, right? Where is he? Did he get a free pass? Did he get a get-out-of-jail card? Why is he not also there to face what he has done? Because it takes two to be involved in a sexual relationship. So you have now this woman who's being charged with this crime. And the problem is that the Pharisees are trying to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. What Jesus would, if Jesus basically says to her, you're forgiven, then he would go weak on the law. Jesus would go soft on sin. If Jesus, on the other hand, says stone her, it would violate his sense of being merciful and a friend to sinners. So it appears as if the Pharisees have got Jesus, you know, in a tough position. How's Jesus going to work himself out of this one? How's, what's he going to say to them? They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So it seems as if there's a chess game going on, you know, each plotting their moves, the Pharisees plotting ahead, premeditating this, now kind of entrapping the woman, bringing her into this public arena. She's just simply a pawn being used in order to trap Jesus. By the way, those individuals that are bringing the accusations against her themselves are, don't have a clean sheet. So Jesus bent down and started to write something on the ground with his finger. Not answering these accusations, you know, the enemy is the accuser. He deceives us and then he brings accusations against us. We get lured itself into sin, entrapped in sin, and then the enemy brings accusations against us. But Jesus now is silent in the face of all of this badgering. Can you imagine these religious leaders just badgering Jesus with these questions? Now, what do you say? And Jesus simply wrote something on the ground. The question is, what did Jesus 
right on the ground. Some would say that Jesus just doodled something on the ground, just kind of wrote something, not paying attention to anything they're saying. But I believe that Jesus was very intentional, that Jesus, when the law was given to Moses, it was the finger of God that wrote the law. Could it be that now Jesus with his finger is writing the law into the dirt? Could it be that knowing their each one's story, Jesus could have written beside the law their names and how they had violated the law? Or maybe even more simply put, thou shalt not commit adultery, maybe he had began listing their names, each one of what they had done. So Jesus bent down and wrote something on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Now this is a famous Jesus statement, perhaps greatly misunderstood, that Jesus looks in the face of her accusers and says, If any one of you does not have sin, you are sinless, then you can be the first to throw the stone. The law required that by the matter of two or three witnesses, the matter is confirmed. So if you want to be the first to throw the stone at somebody, just make sure you have no sin in your life. Now, Jesus would say it like this, judge not lest you also be judged. For with the measure you use, it's going to be measured unto you. Before you begin to take the speck out of someone else's eye, you better be sure you take that telephone pole out of your own eye, right? Because in judging somebody else, you fail to judge yourself. You see, what happens is we often see the sin of somebody else and begin to judge them, but we fail to see the sin in our own hearts our own lives. We forget our own histories. And, you know, just imagine for a moment that I were to stand here and begin talking about somebody. I mean, I'm just shredding somebody. I'm just taking them down. I'm telling you about them. I don't know them. I don't know the circumstances of their life. But I'm just talking bad about them. And somebody's in the sand just writing my own sins down. Or perhaps they're on the screen behind me of all the things I have done. So what's happening now is the Pharisees are judging and condemning this woman, but they're not looking at their own sin. Again, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground, <laughs> convincing evidence. At this we read, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. I would love to have been here for this. I mean, this is the worst day of this woman's life. In her view, this is perhaps the last day of her life. She's expecting that she's going to be stoned. And when she receives something she does not expect to receive, she gets something she has no idea she can receive. She receives forgiveness from the hand of God, protection from the hand of God. 
You know, he is our refuge. And the older ones left. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. Then Jesus said these words, Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Wow. What a story. Go now and leave that lifestyle characterized by sin. I don't condemn you, but go now and leave your lifestyle characterized by sin. You know, one of the great promises in Scripture is John chapter 3, verse 16, which says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know what John 3, 17 says? For God did not send his Son did not send his son, did not send his son into the world to condemn us, but to save us. Jesus does not condemn us. So let me talk to you about Jesus, because I want you to get to know Jesus. The better you get to know Jesus, the better you can talk about Jesus and live out who Jesus is. First off, Jesus isn't condemning. Aren't you glad? There's all kinds of conjecture about what Jesus wrote in the sand. But my personal opinion is that Jesus wrote the law with his finger in the dirt. And then he wrote their sins behind the law. And he listed their sins beginning with the oldest first. I mean, there's an expert in the law. And Jesus writes, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he has his name written beside it. And the man walks away. And then there's another scribe. And it says, thou shalt not steal. But he's been involved with stealing. And he drops his rock and he walks away. For this woman, this is a divine encounter. Jesus was the Messiah. And she gets hauled into a public place. She's been caught in the very act of adultery. She's not been daydream about it, but she's been caught. This, for her, would be the last thing in her life. The law said that she's going to die. These men don't care about her. They don't listen to her story. You know, if you had listened to her story, maybe you would have heard some parts when she was a little girl of what had happened to her. Maybe you would have heard part of her story about what happened to her as a teenager, or the condition of her marriage. You would have heard her story and heard the pain and the heartache in her story. But these men were not interested in hearing her story. They pick up stones against her. She won't see her husband again. She won't be able to explain what happened. She'll never see her children again. So the last thing her children will ever know about her was our mother was stoned. And so she encounters Jesus. And Jesus is not a condemning person. Somehow we have a picture of God that he wants to condemn us. This is what I have come to believe. Hunters hunt, and golfers golf, 
and sinners sin. You say, that's not very profound, Pastor Ron. <laughs> sinners are very good at sinning. And the news is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That hunters hunt and golfers golf and sinners sin. You say, Pastor, how come it is that Jesus does not condemn sinners? Well, Jesus is not shocked when sinners sin. Now, we get shocked when a sinner sins, but God does not get shocked when a sinner sins. See, first time I was down in Haiti, I was shocked that nobody stayed in their lane. When you come to a traffic light, right, there's three lanes, and there's now, you know, seven mopeds, you know, six walkers, three cars, and a tap-tap. And they're all sort of just converging in there together, right? Now, I was shocked. I said to the missionary, I said, I bet you have a lot of accidents down here. They said, no, no, no. We expect people to get out of their lanes. So we're just kind of waiting for someone to get out of line. You see, in America, we expect you to stay in your lane, right? We get offended when you come across that line into my lane, right? We honk when you get into my, my lane because I give you that look like you're in my lane right now, and that's not good. But Jesus was not shocked by sin. He didn't expect sinners to stay in their lane. But he wasn't condemning. You know, Jesus did not have the holier-than-thou attitude. Now, of all the people there, there was only one who was holier-than-thou. It was Jesus. I mean, Jesus could have easily had a holier-than-thou attitude. But rather, what he has is a non-condemning, non-judgmental attitude. You see, the reason why God does not have to condemn us is that we're already condemned. And that's why the scripture says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus means that the condemnation we deserve went to Jesus in order that we might have the freedom that he came to give us in forgiveness. Jesus isn't condemning. God was not sent into this world to condemn you. Now, oftentimes what happens is we feel condemned. Don't we feel condemned? Don't you ever feel like you've done something wrong that you should be judged for? You've been sick for a long time, and you say, like, what have I done to deserve this? So what the enemy will do is he'll bring this condemnation upon you that God is paying you back for something you have done. That's part of the accusations of the enemy. How could Jesus say there is now no condemnation? For God has declared us not guilty. Thank you, God, for declaring us not guilty. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God justifies us freely by his grace. Are you saying, well, God, thank you for declaring me not guilty, but I'm guilty. Are you saying when I declare you not guilty, I'm lying, God says? Son, I couldn't say you're guilty if you're not guilty. Father, how could you declare me not guilty? 
Well, I took all the sin that was on you, and I put that sin onto my son, Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus asked the question, does no one condemn you? And she said, no. Then he said, neither do I. Secondly, Jesus isn't compromising. He said, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin. Jesus wasn't compromising, and he wasn't condemning. We have a tendency to go one way or the other, don't we? We don't want to condemn somebody, and we've been taught to be tolerant. We don't want to compromise. We call it being relevant. You hear people say, well, pastor, you don't understand. This is our generation. Your generation had these morals and beliefs and values, but our generation has been taught to be tolerant, to be relevant. I just want to say the most relevant person of all time is the person of Jesus. Jesus loved to hang out with sinners. Why did sinners love to hang out with Jesus? Well, Jesus did not condemn them, but Jesus did not compromise his values either, you see. Jesus was full of God's grace and God is full of God's truth. You see, God is not against you. God is very much for you. When we fall, God will lift us up because he won't condemn us and he'll never compromise. Third, Jesus is full of compassion. He's full of God's grace and truth. When the woman was caught with her sin and brought before Jesus and made to stand before him, I believe that Jesus perhaps was angry at what had happened. He was angry at the deception, the betrayal, but all he felt toward the woman was compassion. She was caught, but Jesus showed her compassion. That means that Jesus is full of God's grace and God's truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. When releasing the woman caught in adultery, he displayed the qualities of grace and truth. Jesus had grace to set her free, but Jesus also had truth to say and leave your life of sin. When I think about the very best word to describe the tension between grace and truth, I think of the word love. Because when somebody is making life choices that aren't healthy, you feel this tension. On the one hand, you feel extreme love for them. On the other hand, you need to speak truth into their life. Jesus loved her enough to show her grace and tell her the truth. Now, if we're being honest, we would say that Christians, especially evangelical Christians, have been taught that when someone has a different position than yours, a different lifestyle than yours, we can't love somebody who has a different kind of lifestyle. The truth is, to be like Jesus 
is to love people who are vastly different than us, who are very far from God, to bestow upon them God's grace he's shown us and speak God's truth into their life. An NFL player, an NFL season's beginning, was in a Bible study. And in the Bible study, they were talking about fidelity and honesty in relationships. And he said to his fellow players, I think I'm in trouble because several years ago I committed adultery. I was unfaithful to my wife. And I feel as if God is laying upon my heart to confess this to her. And so the men prayed over him and he went back to his wife. And he came back to the group a week later and he was crying. And they said to him, what happened in this interchange between you and your wife? He said, well, I shared the truth about what I had done. And this is what my wife said. I'm sorry you had to carry this for these many years of your life. I'm sorry you had to carry the weight of your sin for so many years in your life that you couldn't be honest with me. Imagine if we dropped the pretense, the mask, and we were just honest with each other. We are all broken. We're all flawed. We're all imperfect. imperfect. We're all inconsistent. We're all sinners. We aren't mistakers. We are sinners. See, the problem is we haven't named the problem. And the problem is that we are sinners. Hunters hunt, golfers golf, and sinners are really good at sinning. Let's look at some questions. How does the way that Jesus treated this woman help you face your own sin? Jesus did not condemn her. Jesus did not compromise the truth. And Jesus showed her compassion. If this is true, I can be honest with the struggles in my own family. I can be forthright with what my stuff is, right? I don't have to hide. If I knew that Jesus would never condemn me and never judge me and never compromise, that God is merciful, full of compassion, kind-hearted and gracious. He does not give me what I deserve. He does not repay me according to my iniquities. He does not keep a list of my transgressions. He does not punish me. It would radically change our view of sin. Secondly, does confronting your own sin make you sympathetic to your neighbor's sin problem? <laughs> when you hear somebody's story, always in their story will be pain. Luther said, when I became a Christian, I believed that my sin had drowned in the deepest part of the sea, but I learned that that sucker can swim. Not only am I in a battle with sin, but every human being I meet is in a battle with sin. Some battle with pride, believing they don't have problems. Some battle with pleasures of this world, 
being choked out by the pleasures of this world. Some battle with emptiness, trying to fill their emptiness up. Some battle with saying yes when they should say no. Some battle with trying to please everyone. To the degree that I struggle with pride, I can be sympathetic to my neighbor's pride. To the degree that my life has been consumed by pleasures, I can be sympathetic to my neighbor's pursuit of pleasure. To the degree that I have been empty, I can be sympathetic to my neighbor's emptiness, trying to fill up their life with activities and noise. To the degree that I have, can't say no, I've said yes when I should have said no, I can be sympathetic to them. Well, how can you go deeper with the people in your group or the people you see every day? We all live in a story. So many times we stay on the surface, but once in a while, God gives us the courage to tell our story. There may be parts of our story that are hard to tell. We may fear that someone's going to judge us if I'd really tell you the truth. But if we have ears to hear, if we create space to listen, people will tell us their story. My first marriage didn't turn out so well. Oh, yeah? What happened? I spent eight years in the Army. Oh, yeah? How was that? My mom passed away when I was just little. How do you remember her? Something happened when I was just 16 years old. I'd love to hear it. You see, story is the story of our life. And to the degree, our life story coincides with the story of the gospel. We become redeemed. And when we become redeemed, God's grace flows into our life in order that God's grace can flow out of our life to somebody who's living in the midst of their story. You see, the biggest problem is we haven't named the problem. Or we have renamed the problem, and we're not getting to the solution to the problem. The solution to the sin problem is that Jesus Christ has come down from heaven into our world to restore us, to make us whole. We're all broken. We all need a Savior. We all need to be made whole again. We all need to be restored. Every person on your street, every person in your family, every barista you'll ever meet, every waiter you'll ever wait upon your table, Every person you work beside is broken and flawed and imperfect and longing to know the love of God that surpasses all understanding. And God has placed you into that person's life in order to have a relationship with them and to progressively be trusted and to be sincere that they can begin to share their story with you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, this morning, we've been trying to hear with our hearts how you dealt with a woman in a very vulnerable position. No doubt she felt this was her last day, certainly her worst day. But it became her best day because she encountered Jesus, who did not condemn her, 
who showed her mercy and love and grace. Just like you showed us mercy and love and grace. And you redeemed our lives. You drew us to yourself. It was your kindness that led us to repentance. And all around us are people living in a story, somewhere in the story. There's pain in their stories. And God, would you give us an ability to listen and to draw out and to show compassion and to bestow grace and truth? Would you give to us, Lord, opportunities this week? Would you help us to just move more powerfully into people's lives, pausing to listen, making room and space in our life to engage, to step forth as Jesus did with going into and understanding and deciding on the necessary approach. Father, would we even be able to name those individuals that you've placed upon our hearts, our burdens? Would you give to us assignments, a willingness, Lord, to um, take your gospel into this world? Would you enable us to become a sending church, like an aircraft carrier sending vessels from that place on mission, being sent out? And we so thank you that many years ago, Lord, you placed into Beth's life a friend named Hope, who had the hope of Jesus inside of her, who conveyed that hope to her and was patient with her and listened to her and just did life with her. Would you show us, Lord, who it is that you're calling us to, who it is you are burdening us for, who it is around who is who's thirsty, who's longing for a drink, longing to be loved. Father, would you do a great work in us that we would be bold and courageous, not sitting on the good news, but sharing the good news of Jesus with others, that he does not condemn, he does not compromise, and he is full of compassion. God, this is our prayer, we pray, together in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me?